morning. We're going to continue reading through the word in Revelation chapter 2, starting at verse 19. And to the angel of the church in Thyatira write the words of the Son of God, who has eyes like a flame of fire and whose feet are like burnished bronze. I know your works, your love and faith and service and patient endurance, and that your latter works exceed the first. But I have this against you, that you tolerate that woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess, and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality and to eat food sacrificed to idols. I gave her time to repent, but she refuses to repent of her sexual immorality. Behold, I will throw her onto a sickbed, and those who commit adultery with her I will throw into great tribulation unless they repent of her works, and I will strike her children dead. And all the churches will know that I am he who searches mind and heart, and I will give to each of you according to your works. But to the rest of you in Thyatira, who do not hold this teaching, and who have not learned what some call the deep things of Satan, to you I say, I do not lay on you any other burden. Only hold fast what you have until I come. The one who conquers and who keeps my works until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations." And he will rule them with a rod of iron. As when earthen pots are broken in pieces, even as I myself have received authority from my Father, and I will give him the morning star. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. This is the word of the Lord. Well, thank you, Nick, for reading. Uh, we are studying the longest text of all the seven churches and to that of the smallest city. But before we jump in, why don't we take a moment to quiet ourselves. I'd invite you to ask the Holy Spirit to speak to you, and then we'll continue with this morning's teaching. And so, Jesus, we do thank you for this opportunity this morning to hear your word. I pray that you would work it into our minds and into our hearts. I pray that we would heed your word and that we would trust you. I pray that you would reveal to us the places in our life where we are seeking out approval and belonging in the places that we live, work, learn, and play, and not a belonging to love others, but a belonging to compromise what we believe in order to be approved. We thank you, Jesus, for, once again, your word. We thank you for these churches, and we pray that we would learn from their experience in your word to them. In your name we pray. Amen. 
Well, this past summer, I read uh, Malcolm Gladwell's most recent book. The book is called The Bomber Mafia. I have a picture of the, the Bomber Mafia's uh, cover here on the screen for us. And in The Bomber Mafia, Malcolm tells the story of a couple of commanding officers, one by the name of Haywood Hansel and another by the name of Curtis LeMay. Now, Haywood Hansel was a man of conviction. He was a man of principle. He led uh, the Air Force unit in the Marianas Islands in the Western North Pacific. Uh, These were a group of islands that were about 1,500 miles from the coast of Japan. Now, in January of 1945, his commanding officer flew into the Marianas, and it was a bit of a surprise to Hansel, uh, but maybe not a complete surprise. But the commanding officer flew in and informed Hansel that he would be losing his job and that an individual by the name of Curtis LeMay would be taking over for him. Now, the reason for his firing was ideological. Haywood Hansel, as I said, was a man of principle. And at this uh, time in history, a daylight precision bombing was a new technology. And for a whole host of a number of reasons, it wasn't working very well in this fight with Japan. And so the commanding officer flew in and said, Hansel, you're done. LeMay is going to take over. And LeMay, on the other hand, had a different perspective. He was not a man who said, we have to go with daylight precision bombing. He was a man who had a different view. Malcolm Gladwell, in his book, The Bomber and Mafia, writes this. Satan tempts Jesus by offering him dominion over all he sees. The chance to defeat the Roman enemy, if only Jesus will accept, as one theologian puts it, the temptation to do evil that good may come, to justify the illegitimacy of the means by the greatness of the end. Haywood questioned, you should never do evil so that good may come. But LeMay would have thought long and hard about going with Satan. He would have accepted the illegitimate means if they led to what he considered a swift and more advantageous end. For LeMay's first attack, he identified a 12-square-mile neighborhood in Tokyo, Japan. And over the course of about three hours, they dropped 1,600 tons of napalm on these neighborhoods. You could see the burning and the destruction went for a 16-square-mile period, or 16-square-mile section. The United States Strategic Bombing Survey concluded that probably more persons lost their lives by fire in Tokyo within that six-hour period than at any time in the history of man. LeMay would go on to launch additional attacks across Japan, leading to the destruction of entire cities and lost lives accounted for more than a million, but it's really hard to know the complete number. In contrast to LeMay, as Gladwell Hansel believed that we don't have to slaughter the innocent, burn them beyond recognition in pursuit of our military goals, we can do it better. Now, if you fast forward to the modern day, precision bombing is the standard method of bombing in the world. And in January of 2009, President Obama signed a United Nations protocol banning the use of incendiary weapons or weapons that cause fires. And to this day, 115 nations have since signed that treaty. To conclude, Gladwell comments, Curtis LeMay may have won the battle, but Haywood Hansel won the war. 
Now, Hansel was faced with the decision, do I compromise my principles? Do I compromise my conviction and my principles for the sake of approval, certainly to keep his job? But he chose not to compromise, staying true to his convictions, regardless of what the consequences would mean for him. Now, Hansel and his decision introduces, introduces for us the challenge for the church in Thyatira, and I would suggest the challenge that you and I face. Will we hold true to our convictions, or will we let them go for the sake of being approved by the environments and by the people that we are surrounded by? And so with that, let's jump in to this word from Jesus to the church of Thyatira. Verse 18, if you have your Bibles. And to the angel of the church in Thyatira, write. Now, as a reminder, as we've been studying, this isn't a literal angel. It's more so speaking of the spirit of the church. Thyatira was a city in Western Asia Minor. I have a map here on the screen, a map we've been going to regularly. Uh, Thyatira was founded by Seleucus I, and it was initially founded as a military outpost, and it had a strong uh, group of soldiers that were there for Seleucus to protect his empire. Uh, The city would eventually fall to the Romans, and then under the Romans, under stable conditions of Roman rule, it was destined for growth and prosperity, and it became a center for manufacturing and for marketing. And within Thyatira, trade guilds flourished. Now you might say, well, what in the world are trade guilds? This is what a trade guilds are. They were an association of persons of the same trade or pursuits, and they were formed to protect mutual interests and maintain standards. You can think of a community amongst those in marketing and manufacturing. Some of the trades that, that flourished in that time were wool workers, linen workers, makers of outer garments, dyers, leather workers, tanners, potters, bakers, even slave dealers, and then bronze smiths. There's another mention of Thyatira in the New Testament. You can look at Acts 16. A woman by the name of Lydia is mentioned, and she's actually mentioned as being a seller of purple goods, which makes sense. She, she came from this manufacturing hub of Thyatira. What is the word to this church? First, Jesus introduces himself in this way. The words of the Son of God who has eyes like a flame of fire and whose feet are like burnished bronze. Now, the city of Thyatira also boasted a temple to the god Apollo, who is known as the Sun God. So it's no mistake that Jesus introduces himself as the Son of God. It's the resurrected Christ who is the true Son of God. We then have the mentioning of blazing eyes. Robert Mounts in his commentary writes this, the blazing eyes suggest the penetrating power of Christ's ability to see through the seductive arguments of Jezebel, which we'll get to in a moment, and those who are being led astray by her pernicious teaching. Feet like burnished bronze convey the idea of strength and splendor. And so Jesus introduces himself and says, make no mistake, this is who I am. I see your works. I have the power and the authority. Listen. Jesus begins, as he does in other other sections to these churches, with a word of commendation and approval. What does he commend them for? What does he approve of them? Verse 19, I know your works, your love and faith 
and service and patient endurance and that your latter works exceed the first. They're commended for a life of active service. They're commended for lives of love. They're commended for lives of faith. They're commended for lives of being patient and enduring. You think of this church. They were a church that stood up likely for social justice. They loved others well. They were like, look at the teachings of Jesus. It's all about love. we got to love people. And they loved people well. Their works exceed the first. They're a people of love. Now, some of us might be going, what's the problem then? They're people of love. What does Jesus say? But I have this against you, that you tolerate that woman, Jezebel, Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality and to eat food sacrificed to idols. Let's pinpoint it. What is he calling out? The church was tolerating and they were permitting a false prophetess to influence them and to then lead them into compromise. Now, why the name Jezebel? Well, it's likely that the name Jezebel is symbolic, and it points back to the Old Testament. You're maybe familiar with the story of the children of Israel, maybe familiar with Jezebel. Under Jezebel's leadership as queen, the wife of Ahab, the children of Israel started worshiping Baal. Some of you maybe read that as Baal. The proper pronunciation is Baal. Can you say Baal to your neighbor? Baal. And under Jezebel... They walked out worship of Baal more than any time before. They tolerated her teaching, and then they began to practice Baal worship. And so it's symbolic here to point us to the fact that she was that idolatrous queen who enticed Israel to worship Baal and to participate in their religious ceremonies. And so what this false prophetess is doing in Thyatira is she's teaching believers how to compromise with Roman religion and the practice of the guilds so that Christians would not lose their jobs or their lives. Once again, quoting Robert Mounts, who says, In a city whose economic life was dominated by trade guilds in which pagan religious practices had become the criteria for membership, Christian converts would be faced with the problem of compromising their stand at least to enough to allow participation in a common meal dedicated to some pagan deity. To reject this accommodation could mean social isolation and economic hardship. And what this prophetess is saying is, don't worry about it. It's all about love. And so what was the church tolerating? The church was tolerating the promotion of compromise for the sake of belonging or acceptance by the wider culture and also to avoid hardship, rejection, or hostility. How prevalent is this? We get this. You think about the pressure or of peers or colleagues to join in. We think about the participation, the challenge, the temptation of language and joking in our work environs that mimics the environment of the places that we work. We think about the temptation to drink to excess at the neighborhood friend or work party. 
We think about maybe belittling or dismissing our convictions to be part of a wider group. Maybe you think about not calling out stereotypes or harmful comments made about ethnicities, classes, or other marginalized groups. You can think about spending and consuming in such a way within our culture that we want to keep at par with the people around us. Or how about generally just adjusting our beliefs and doctrine to be more culturally acceptable. And so the problem facing Thyatira is the same problem that we have in our initial tolerance and compromise, which then what leads us to further compromise. And this is what was happening with these believers in Thyatira. They were listening. They were listening to this prophetess. They were then participating in these pagan practices. And then through the pagan practices, they're like, well, we're at the party. We might as well participate. The desire for membership, skewed by the false teaching, was leading those in the church to lower their sexual morals and standards and then act out. John Mark Comer, in his book, Live No Lies, writes this. Every follower of Jesus in every culture has to constantly ask the question, in what ways have I been assimilated into the host culture? Where have I drifted from my identity and inheritance? The temptation for us in the West is less to atheism and more to a DIY, that's short for do-it-yourself, faith, that's a mix of the way of Jesus, consumerism, secular sex ethics, and a radical individualism. So how does this happen? How does this assimilation and compromise happen? Well, it begins with a false idea, a lie. It starts with a lie of, it's not that bad. It's certainly better than, and fill in the blank. begins with a lie of, well, it's always easier to ask for forgiveness afterwards. To believe the lie of, well, you don't want to be the weirdo at work. And then what happens is that this false idea or this lie then appeals in our lives to disordered desires. Desires of our flesh that are twisted. The animalistic sides of us. And then what happens is that those ideas, as they come and we start to think, yes, this is a good idea, they then become normalized and accepted in society in which we live. This is much the hypothesis of John Mark's book in Live No Lies. He writes, everything starts with deceptive ideas. This is why teaching matters so much. It's why teachers are called out in the scriptures and will be judged more harshly. Everything starts with deceptive ideas or lies we believe. We put our trust in and live by about reality. Mental maps that come from the devil, not Jesus, and lead to death, not life. But deceptive ideas get as far as they do because they appeal to our disordered desires or our flesh. And then the world comes in to compete the, the, the three enemies of the circular loop. Our disordered desires are normalized in a sinful society which functions as a kind of echo chamber for the flesh. A self-validating feedback loop where we're all telling each other what we want or what our flesh wants to hear. And where does it begin? The lie. Jesus continues with his accusation, I gave her time to repent. I gave her time to change her mind. 
but she refuses to repent of her sexual immorality. She's unwilling to change her mind to repent of her compromise and alliance with the environment. Jesus then continues with the consequences of this refusal. Verse 22, Behold, I will throw her onto a sickbed, and those who commit adultery with her I will throw into great tribulation unless they repent of her works. And I will strike her children dead, and all churches will know that I am he who searches mind and heart, and I will give to each of you according to your works. Make no mistake, these are harsh words and devastating consequences. And yet, do they not illustrate for us the danger of bad ideas, of deceptive teaching? You think of Adam and Eve in the garden. What did it begin with? Did God actually say? Where does this lead? And think of the consequences upon Adam and Eve's decision. Death. And so while there are certainly eternal consequences that can be applied here, speaking of the great tribulation which Jesus speaks of, there's also the present reality for those who continue to tolerate Jezebel's false teaching and then to practice it. And you and I know this, the weight of living with the reality that we've compromised what we said we would never do. Now, I could ask to get a show of hands, but I'm sure every one of us would raise our hand. Have you ever some, done something that you said, I will never do? We've all done it. Now, what do you do with that? What do you do with that, that weight? What do you do with that guilt? Well, some of us want to just believe, well, just do away with it. You know, you shouldn't feel guilty. There's no such thing as right and wrong. Do away with that. But then that way of thinking comes with its own set of consequences. Tim Keller, in defining hell, says it's one's freely chosen identity apart from God on a trajectory into infinity. So we try to just do away with it. Others of us, when we feel the weight, we then try to just point the finger at somebody else. We start playing the blame game. It's your fault. You made me do it. We blame those who've gone before us. Or who sit on the other side of the aisle. But then this is really a self-righteous posture. You're the person in the wrong, not me. You made me do it. Isn't that what Adam does with Eve? She made me do it. Or how about then allowing it to crush us? You just try to live under it. And that's devastating as well, right? To live under that weight of that compromise, the guilt that you feel. But this is then a tribulation in the present. But then what do we know as followers of Jesus? Well, we initially, we feel the guilt. We feel the conviction. But then what do we do? We then entrust it to Christ. What does Jesus say? And all the churches will know that I am he who searches mind and heart. And I will give to each of you according to your works. He sees. We are like panes of glass before the eyes of Jesus. He sees everything. And we can either go, okay, and now I give it back to you because he's made a way to deal with our guilt. If only you will repent. Now, it's interesting at this point, 
also to contrast the churches. The Ephesian church was weakening in its love, yet faithful to judge false teachers. While the people of Thyatira were growing in their love, but too tolerant of false doctrine. And both extremes must be avoided in the church. 2 Corinthians 10 verse 5 tells us, We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to what? Obey Christ. I have some encouraging words to say. Verse 24, But to the rest of you in Thyatira who do not hold to this teaching, who have not learned what some call the deep things of Satan— Think about this, the deep things of Satan, the false teaching that's leading you astray into practice. Ideas, disordered desires, acting out. To you I say, do not, I do not lay on you any other burden. Keep going. Keep at it. Only hold fast what you have until I come. Verse 26, the one who conquers and who keeps my works until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations. And he will rule with them a rod as when earthen pots are broken in pieces, even as I myself have received authority from my Father. And I will give him the morning star. It should encourage us that not everyone in the church was compromising for the sake of belonging and that Jesus has a special word for them. And there are promised authority over the nations, which refers to the fact that they will live and reign with Christ forever. And they're also assured of Jesus' presence with them. Jesus Christ is the bright morning star. And the promise in Revelation 2 verse 28 that we read here, suggests that God's people shall be closely identified with Christ and that he then will belong to them. He will belong to us. Nine, as has been happening in these words to the other churches, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. I want to simply ask us the question, do you hear? Are you listening? Where are you compromising for the sake of belonging? In which ways are you trusting yourself or ideas, deceptive ideas, rather than trusting Christ? In what ways are you unwilling to have your mind changed, to repent, to turn to Jesus? And so that certainly, I would suggest, is the first step, is to repent. As the Spirit of God, if you trust him and he is inside of you, guides you and convicts you to repent. If you are not a follower of Jesus, I would invite you to consider Jesus. He is good. He sees you. He knows you. He loves you. But then what I would also say is that this is teaching 
to this church in Thyatira that also challenges us with the spiritual practice of participating in a local church. A local church being a counterculture for the good. You know what it highlights? Obviously the great opportunity, but then also the great danger in a church. The great opportunity is that you don't live your spiritual life in a silo in which false ideas can really take hold. You live your life in community with other people, these ideas with, and they can call you out when it is necessary to call you out and encourage you when it is necessary to encourage you. John Tyson defines Christian community this way. Christian community is a web of stubbornly loyal relationships knotted together in a living network of persons in a complex and complex and challenging cultural setting who are committed to practicing the way of Jesus together for the renewal of the world. Maybe you've been living at arm's length with Christian community. And you're, you're generally, most of the time you're believing like, I'm okay doing it this way. You know, a lot of us, we want the crowd. We don't actually want community. And what we need is community so that we can lean in and so that we can be challenged and so that the false teaching can't get a hold of us. And so even if you are wrestling with your faith, I would encourage you to commit to a local church. That the discipline and practice is a good thing for your journey. That it's not good to go it alone. But then what this also raises for us is also the caution around local churches. Because as we also know, and some of us maybe can speak from personal experience, a local church can also be the hotbed of false teaching. And so it's also necessary that we be aware, that we be cautious, we explore what a church believes, and if we can truly ask the question, can I trust the elders within this local church? But we must be conscious as well that while there's great opportunity, there is also great caution. It invites us to exploring which churches we would like to participate with to ask the question, what does this church believe? And are they willing to hold true to conviction in the midst of a culture of compromise? This morning, we are going to take communion together. And I think that this is, every morning is likely a good morning for communion. But I think that this message this morning is maybe a great opportunity. An opportunity, one, that each of us could again have the self-reflective opportunity to ask ourselves the question of where is the compromise? What are the false ideas that have taken root in my soul? To have the invitation of thank you, Jesus, that you know me, you see me, and and my sin is no surprise to you. You died for me before I was alive, before I committed the sin, before I walked into the compromise that I've walked into. You knew me, 
and you loved me, and you died for me so that I don't have to live under the weight of this compromise. I don't have to live under the weight of this guilt and shame, for there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And so maybe communion today for you is an invitation to return to the lover and to the Savior of your soul. Maybe for others of us, this morning is an opportunity to once again revel in the reality, to hear the words of Jesus. I do not add any more burden to you. Continue to walk out being faithful to me in those environments where you live, work, learn, and play. Keep at it. I'm with you. I'm for you. I'm not against you. You don't have to participate for the sense of that belonging. It's good to want to belong, but know first and foremost that you belong to me. You belong to me. And so regardless of how well you're accepted or loved or approved of, I am with you and I am watching out for you. I am taking care of you. For this church in Thyatira, it was if they don't participate, they could lose their role. They could lose their influence. They might not have their way of providing for themselves economically, yet they were willing to count the cost to follow Jesus. May we count the cost as we follow Jesus, and may we remain faithful to him. You know, earlier I touched on Adam and Eve's sin. They believed the lie, and that lie played to their disordered desire. But there's also this great good news of what Jesus has done for us. Romans 5, verse 18 to 19. I appreciate the way Eugene Peterson puts this for us. He says, here it is in a nutshell. Just as one person did it wrong and got us in all this trouble with sin and death, another person did it right and got us out of it. But but more than just getting us out of trouble, he got us into life. One man said no to God and put many people in the wrong. One man said yes to God and put many in the right. I want to invite you then Jesus, as he celebrated his Passover with the disciples, he instructed them, instructed them. When he took the bread, he said, this is a symbol of my body. Do this in remembrance of me. Let us take this wafer as it symbolizes Jesus' broken body for you and for me. He then took the cup, the wine, and he said, take this in remembrance of me and my shed blood poured out for you. Take this together, remembering his shed blood for us. To conclude, I want to read these words of Romans 5 once again. I would invite you to close your eyes. 
Here it is in a nutshell. Jong and got us in all this trouble with sin and death. Another person did it right and got us out of it. But more than just getting us out of trouble, he got us into life. One man said no to God and put many people in the wrong. One man said yes to God and put many, you and me, in the right. Thank you, Jesus.